Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode in our Topics in Drug Testing podcast series. My name is Frank Samara. I'm the Director of Marketing for the Drug Monitoring and Toxicology Franchise here at Quest. Today, our episode is titled Ketamine, A Reemergence in Medicine and Misuse, and some real interesting information you're going to learn about some new uses for ketamines. So I don't want to steal the guy's thunder, but you're going to learn a lot. Today, our podcast, as usual, features Quest's very own Dr. Jeff Gooden and Dr. Jack Kane. Jeff and Jack, it's so great to have you with us today. I'll turn it over to you to introduce yourselves and get the discussion started. Welcome and thanks for joining another episode of Quest's podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Gooden. I'm Senior Medical Advisor to the Toxicology and Drug Monitoring Franchise, and I'm also a professor of anesthesia, perioperative medicine, and pain management at the University of Miami. I'm accompanied today by my friend and colleague, Dr. Jack Kane. Hey, Jack, say hello and give us a quick intro. How you doing, Dr. Gooden? Happy to be here. I'm Dr. Jack Kane, Director, Medical Science Liaison for Drug Monitoring and Toxicology at Quest Diagnostics. So thanks again for listening. For those of you that have been following us, boy, we've done probably 17 or 18 of these podcasts, giving you insights into clinical drug monitoring, how to do it, why to do it, some of the new novel substances that we're seeing out there in the in the environment. And today we're going to talk to you about one of those substances, which is not an old one, a new one. It's actually an old one. It's ketamine. So you see the title of the podcast is A Reemergence in Medicine and Misuse. As Jack and I are going to take you through a little bit of, of ketamine and the surge, so to speak, that we've seen in its use and misuse in both medicine and in the illicit market. So Jack, why don't you start out by giving our audience a little primer. What is ketamine? Yeah, ketamine. I mean, it's a very interesting substance, as you mentioned. It, it's not necessarily a novel substance, but in some ways, as we'll discuss today, it, it's becoming more novel in its use or how it's being used and in some ways, even a reemergence. And, and misuse as well. So ketamine has been around as a prescription since the 1970s, predominantly to induce anesthesia in humans and in animals. What a lot of people don't realize is that ketamine is also a derivative of fencyclidine. And if you don't know what fencyclidine is, that's actually PCP is how it's known on the street or other various illicit names for this illicit street drug. So ketamine is a derivative of PCP. Is it anywhere near as dangerous as PCP, we'll cover that today. But why it's gotten popular in pharmacology circles is also very interesting because sure, it has these anesthetic effects, you know, knocks people out, but it also has analgesic effects as well. And it's a sedative. And so it has these multiple pharmacologic effects that are all in one, all found in ketamine dose. And that's been desired by practitioners and even first responders, so much so that first responders have actually used ketamine and patients who are going through delirium and psychosis to calm them down, but it doesn't have the risks associated with something like benzodiazepines that have been used in large doses traditionally, meaning like uh, benzodiazepines have been known to cause respiratory depression and those increased risks in the patients that could be fatal in the long run. Well, ketamine doesn't necessarily have that same kind of risk profile, and that's why it's been used in certain various settings, such as the one I just mentioned. Yeah, you know, Jack, we have some anesthesia colleagues, I'm sure, listening to us today. And I could tell you, having trained in anesthesia, there were certain attendings who this was their favorite drug to use. It is a great analgesic. It's a great anesthetic. You know, like you mentioned, the delirious patients, we get these nursing home patients who fall and fracture their hip 
and they're screaming on the table and small amounts of ketamine. The next thing you know, they're quiet and calm and relaxed and we can move them from the stretcher to the operating room table. We see painful procedures being done in the emergency room, fracture settings and other kinds of things with ketamine. So it is a great anesthetic. And then recently, as you'll talk about in just a moment, I'm sure it's been introduced into the world of psychiatry for things like advanced depression and PTSD. So you can't drive down Main Street nowadays without seeing a sign for a, a ketamine clinic. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. I guess while we're there, Jack, tell us a little bit about the medical interest in ketamine that we've seen kind of sprout out. Yeah, you mentioned Main Street, but like, you know, what about Main Street in the scientific circles? I hear about ketamine even in consults with providers at least once a month here at Quest. And there's just a re-emerging interest in ketamine. It's not, a, as I mentioned, it's not necessarily a novel substance, but increasingly novel in human use and where we're starting to use it. So I look at various literature platforms just to see how much ketamine research has actually increased. And there has been a burst in research into ketamine to better understand the mechanisms that underlie its antidepressant effects and various other effects as well, but predominantly in the as an antidepressant or patients who have a history of treatment-resistant depression, where does ketamine fit in that circle? So a number of publications on ketamine indexed in PubMed each year from 1965 to 2019. I'm telling you, from 1970, just from a couple hundred to like 2020, we're talking in excess of 1,200 studies per year. Yeah, Jack, and I think that has a lot to do with the emergence of ketamine as a potential uh, psychiatric or mental health medication. Uh, why don't you give us some background on that? Yeah, major depressive disorder, you know, it impacts more than 19 million adults each year in the United States. The World Health Organization, they've said that depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. And so many people treated on antidepressants, such as your selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, various other antidepressants. Patients don't really experience the pharmacotherapeutic effects that you would expect with the antidepressant. So they'll have an incomplete response. And in many ways, we call that treatment-resistant depression. Well, what do we do with those patients? Are there other therapeutic avenues that we can take to treat depression? And, and that's where a lot of this research is happening. And ketamine is certainly gaining traction. Hey, Jack, I was going to say, for those interested or, or those of you who know a little bit of a, about the background or the mechanism of action of ketamine, Jack mentioned before, it's a N-methyl deaspartate or NMDA receptor antagonist. And NMDA does a lot of things in the brain. And this is just one postulated mechanism that it controls excitability. And you talked before about patients that are either delirious or suicide, right? I mean, untreated depression is a major risk factor for suicide. If we can get to these people and try mm -hmm. to calm down their brains a bit, so to speak, with a drug like ketamine, I think that's why we've seen such a great interest and the production of a recent product. Tell us a little bit about the intranasal approval by FDA. Just to keep in mind, because there's a lot of marketing going out there, uh, that ketamine is FDA approved to be used to treat all mental disorders, and that's just not the case. So ketamine is not FDA approved for all psychiatric and mental health disorders. However, intranasal ketamine, an isomer known as S-ketamine, a randomized double-blind controlled placebo trials have recently determined that intranasal non-anesthetic doses of S-ketamine have an ultra-rapid antidepressant effect. And so this has led to S-ketamine nasal spray brand names, Bravato is the only version of ketamine currently that is FDA approved to treat resistant depression. On the front lines, you see the psychiatrists have already started prescribing this because 
much to my surprise, there's no shortage of patients with treatment-resistant depression. Yeah, um, and Dr. Gooden, uh, just real quick too, that is only FDA approved in conjunction with another oral antidepressant. Gotcha. And because of ketamine status as a controlled substance with the potential for abuse, like some of the opioids, like the extended release opioids and the rapid onset opioids, the FDA asked it to be associated with a REMS program, risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. And that's because a REM strategy is basically to educate clinicians and patients to avoid some of the adverse effects and to promote safe use of the drug. So this is a self-administered drug. It's a nasal spray. It clicks when you, when you administer a dose. To start out, it has to be administered under the supervision of a healthcare provider. They have to be monitored in a healthcare setting for about two hours. And Jack mentioned S-ketamine. Remember, remember drugs are have two enantiomers, but the when you separate them out and use just one of the enantiomers, like the s an anterior of ketamine. The literature suggests it has a higher affinity for that receptor I mentioned before, NMDA, and might produce less side effects than giving the, the parent drug, which is a combination of S-ketamine and R-ketamine. And obviously, intranasal administration is not as painful as injection. It's less invasive, and it gives you better oral bioavailability. So Jack, it's not all good stuff. There are some risks of, of ketamine, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what we do here. This is the Department of Toxicology. And so what is the toxicology? This is the negative implications associated with medicine use or drug misuse. So ketamine is not without risk. It does have a black box warning. The REMS program you just mentioned is an acknowledgement of the risks associated with ketamine. So while it does sound like it's an amazing substance, again, it is not without risk and it can be misused. So like if you just think about some of the side effect of high dose ketamine, it can increase heart rate. So if you have patients with cardiovascular issues, you know, history of cardiac arrhythmias, or even other substances that might cause QT prolongations or arrhythmias of the heart, you're going to have a patient at increased risk for developing side effects. So whether it be through drug-drug interactions or just a history of cardiovascular issues, ketamine increases blood pressure. So it can lead to hypertension. Well, if you already have a patient who has hypertension, that just compounds that risk. Jack, I'll tell you, it's really interesting in the anesthesia world. It was the only hypnotic drug, I meaning the only drug that puts patients to sleep that actually stimulated respiration, right? So if we had a really high risk patient, mm-hmm. a trauma patient who is hypovolemic, a pregnant patient, uh, an older patient, somebody with COPD, we preferred ketamine because you take a drug like propofol or pentothal, and those drugs would suppress respiration. So yeah, it has this novel side effect profile, but one of the weird things about it is at lower doses, it actually stimulates respiration. Now, look, if you take enough of it, all of our CNS depressants will, will depress respiration, but it's just kind of, kind of neat from that standpoint. Let's not talk about the abusers now. Let's still talk about the uh, prescription aspect. What do we tell patients to look out for while at home? Yes, ketamine currently, it's administered under direct supervision for the treatment of depression. But anyone who's being exposed to ketamine, and especially as we go forward, increased access to ketamine. I mean, there are companies out there that are selling ketamine lozenges online. It's important for patients and providers to know like what this substance can do. It's a dissociative. It's a sedative and a dissociative. It can cause loss of motor coordination at moderate to high doses. I mean, if you were to fall and hurt yourself, it'd be difficult to call for help. And patients who misuse it, it could lead to something called the K-hole, just complete dissociation. And I'm just concerned about individuals who think they can operate 
machinery or operate vehicles. And there are individuals who are doing that while under the influence of dissociatives such as ketamine. It's just very important to understand the risks associated with ketamine. Even though this is an NNDA antagonist, we think would have some neuroprotective effects. I remember 20 years ago or so, some of the pain doctors giving this intrathecally. And then the studies came out that when you do that and you study it in animals, it causes vacualization like holes or lesions in the spinal cord and brain. But it turns out something interesting about the prescription drug just recently approved, S-ketamine, just the S-enantiomer, doesn't mm. appear to do that. So I think we have some promising research to come, maybe even you know some direct intrathecal administered ketamine studies. Before we finish, I want to make sure to get to this because most people are probably logging in to listen to this ketamine talk because they've seen it abused or misused out there in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, give, give us a couple minutes on... How, why, uh, you know, like, uh, do we test for it? Is this a club drug that people might abuse by itself? Is it abused together with other things? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So ketamine, I mean, it, it is, I think it's taking off because it's a dissociative hallucinogenic. It could be administered in, through multiple routes, whether it be injection, intramuscular, or through nasal insufflation, such as like cocaine is. It could be found as a powder. It's more of a crystal-like, but at night, some of these clubs, uh, I'm just concerned that it could be combined with other substances because of its appearance as a powder. But dissociative drugs, just in general, they distort sight, color, sound, one's environment. It's that out-of-body experience. I mean, ketamine, it's known as the, quote, decay hole. And, and that's because, I mean, if you look at the chemical structure of ketamine, it, it looks like a brother or sister molecule to PCP. And so much so that could even impact you do just a point of care cup for PCP and you have a patient who's prescribed ketamine or has been administered ketamine under direct supervision for depression, it could cause a false positive on a point of care or an immunoassay a drug test. So if you don't do a confirmation, you're not going to know that that false positive occurred. And so if you don't send to the lab, you're not going to really know that that false positive occurred. That's more concerning to me as ketamine gets more popular. You know, Jack, that's a great point. And you and I have kind of beat this horse to death, the difference between presumptive and definitive drug testing. But to remind you guys out there, a presumptive drug test, like a point of care cup, where they give you a urine sample or a dipstick, is really wrought with false positives and even false negatives because it's not a very sensitive tool. But when you send it to a lab like Quest Diagnostics, and they do definitive gas or liquid chromatography with mass spectrometry, you get the exact concentrations of that drug that's in the sample without the pitfalls of false positives and false negatives. So just a reminder, if you're only doing point of care testing and you're suspicious about a drug and your test doesn't give you the result that you're suspicious of, keep in mind that you could send that sample to the lab for a more definitive analysis. Mm -hmm. So Jack, old drug, is it stable as far as uh, what do we see from an abuse standpoint? I think it's definitely increasing in prevalence of misuse, even self-reported past year ketamine use increased, but it still remains relatively low, around like 1% in terms of self-reporting. But we also know, Dr. Gunan, that self-reporting isn't always reliable. It's the laboratory analytics that truly show or fill the gap of of what's going on out there, you know, whether it be postmortem toxicology or just clinical drug testing results that shows what's actually passed through a patient's system. And how do I know a drug's passed through a patient's system? When I look in a urine specimen and I see the metabolite of ketamine, aka norketamine, which is actually the active metabolite. 
So it has its own therapeutic effects as well. And is it detectable in urine drug testing? Absolutely. It's certainly detectable. It has a short half-life. We might have trouble detecting it in excess of 24 hours. That remains to be seen. And, And as laboratory testing gets more sensitive and even more specific, I think we'll start seeing expanded windows of detection and increased positivity. And I think ketamine is a little bit like I take a drug like fentanyl, where the parent goes away pretty quick, but we could see the metabolite nor fentanyl hang around. And I think the same goes for ketamine, right? Even if there's no ketamine there, uh, Mm -hmm. which if there was a point of care test would test for ketamine at the lab, we could test for nor ketamine, which might hang around a bit longer. Mm -hmm. Uh, So here's what I've said when people ask me about ketamine testing. It's hard to abuse a dissociative anesthetic and appear normal. So if you have patients who look like something's wrong, like they're in a toxidrome, like they're confused, you mm-hmm. know, we talk about this being dissociative. What does that mean? It basically means it scrambles your brain. When we gave it for anesthesia, I, and it's the only drug that I think does what I'm about to tell you. Usually when you go to focus on something, your eyes converge. So if you hold up a paper, your eyes kind of come together to converge on that one spot. Ketamine is the only drug that I know of that makes your eyes diverge. And it looks really weird after you give it. Because the patient tries to look straight, but one eye is looking one way and one eye is looking the other way, right? So (laughs) it literally scrambles your brain. So I tell clinicians, look, it's hard to be normal and abuse ketamine. But if you're suspecting that they're misusing some illicit street drug and it's not showing up on, let's say you're only doing a panel of six, seven or eight drugs, cocaine, methamphetamine, marijuana, you know, your everyday kind of drugs, you might want to consider testing for ketamine. Absolutely. Jack, any closing comments? Where do you see the field moving in the future as far as ketamine goes? Yeah, I just see a lot more research happening with ketamine, especially with the isoform known as S-ketamine, which appears to be safer. And so for anyone misusing ketamine out there or providers who see patients or have patients that have misused ketamine, just communicate the risks associated with it. Street ketamine often has a mix of both isoforms of ketamine and only S-ketamine has been shown to be the safer version of it. And there's even an FDA alert that acknowledged that the ketamine with multiple isoforms in its formulation has been shown to cause brain lesions in mice. So there's still so much more that we have to learn about this substance and we'll continue to learn about it, especially as the medical community gets increasingly on board and researchers and various companies explore the substance even further. Yeah, Jack, I'll just close out by saying, look, you need to be an educated clinician so that you can help educate your patients. They're going to open the local newspaper and see advertisements for ketamine infusions. And like you said before, Jack, they'll mail you ketamine to your house in oral tablets or nasal sprays. You need to know a little bit about the molecule and especially about its kinetic pharmacodynamic properties because patients are going to be asking you about it. Well, Jack, this was another great session on ketamine. Please feel free to visit Quest Drug Monitoring or questdrugtesting.com. Visit some of the other podcasts that Jack and I have done together, as long as had some special guests on those podcasts. All of them have something to do with drug testing or drug monitoring, which will remind you is the only way to know what your patient has in their system. Jack, a pleasure as usual. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Okay, well, that does it for today's discussion on ketamine. I hope you got a lot out of the conversation. I want to thank our experts, Dr. Gooden and Dr. Kane, for sharing their expertise and their information. Just a few notes to wrap up. To learn more about Quest Diagnostics drug monitoring offering, please visit our website, questdrugmonitoring.com. 
Also, if you want to listen to this and all our other podcasts, I think Dr. Gooden mentioned we have 17 or 18 now, be sure to visit questdrugtesting.com or subscribe through your favorite podcast venue. Just search for topics and drug testing. At Quest, we're committed to providing you results and insight to support your clinical decisions. Have a great day.